Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's right, that's me, Melissa Canchola. I'm your host, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. We're going to get started with Dr. Valdi Wilkham and a faithfulness that honors God here on Truth Be Told Radio. As we come to Daniel chapter 6 and our journey through this wonderful book, we come to what is in many respects uh, a potentially dangerous part of the book here in Daniel chapter 6. Dangerous, potentially dangerous for at least a couple of reasons. One reason that it's potentially dangerous is it's one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. Daniel and the lion's den. And it's always dangerous when we know something so well because we have a tendency to sort of fill in the blanks. And if we're not careful with those passages of Scripture that we know so very well, and if we don't read them and reread them, we assume that we know them. We assume that we understand them. We assume that we put the emphasis on the right syllable. In every instance, because of how familiar we are with the text, there's a second reason that this is a potentially dangerous passage of Scripture, and that is because this is absolute rife ground for works righteousness. It is so tempting and so easy to go to Daniel chapter 6 and view Daniel merely as a, 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 a template for us, if you will, for us to go to Daniel chapter 6 and say, see, this is what Daniel did, therefore this is what you should do. Because after all, the book of Daniel is all about us looking to Daniel to learn how to live, is it not? If you've been here, you should be shaking your head like this right now. No, that is not what the book of Daniel is all about. That is not why the book of Daniel exists. That is not the purpose of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 does not exist to raise a bar for us to attempt to jump over in our own strength. There is much more at work in this passage than that. But that is the easy knee-jerk reaction. As we look more closely, however, we see in Daniel chapter 6 especially in those first 15 verses that we'll concentrate on today. We we don't even get to the lion's den today. Here we just get the setup to the lion's den. We find out how that came to pass. And in this passage, what we'll see is faithfulness that honors God. That's the picture here. It's a picture of faithfulness that honors God. We have come through the first five chapters of this great book, and in the first three chapters, we see Daniel and his friends in Babylonian captivity. And in the first three chapters, we see this juxtaposition of God's people in exile and the great king Nebuchadnezzar, and the God who rules the world, who reminds the great king 
that he rules the world, and Nebuchadnezzar, who believes that he is the one who actually rules the world. And we see God, through Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, showing Nebuchadnezzar again and again and again who's in control. And so finally, in chapter 4, God sends Nebuchadnezzar into the wilderness to live like a wild animal, eating grass for seven years until he finally bows the knee and confesses the holiness and righteousness and sovereignty of God. And then he's gone unceremoniously. And in chapter 5, Belshazzar is king. We, we, We don't know where Nebuchadnezzar went. We don't know how he lived the rest of his life. We just see that Belshazzar is king. Now, at the end of chapter 5, Belshazzar's gone, deposed by Darius. And now the Babylonians have been deposed. So we've gone from, we've gone from one king who was a Babylonian king to another king who was a Babylonian king, and a couple of kings between those kings, to now the Medes and the Persians are ruling. And Darius is king. And in the midst of all of this turmoil, there is a name that remains, and that is the name of Daniel, God's servant. Daniel, God's trophy, if you will, in the midst of Babylonian captivity that reminds you, reminds me, and at this time reminded all of God's people that God is faithful to his people that God will fulfill his promise, that although his people at times will be chastened for their sin, God does not forsake his people. And so Daniel stands as this picture of faithfulness, the faithfulness of Daniel, which is a picture of the faithfulness of God to preserve his people. Don't miss that. It's not about Daniel, as much as it is about God, who is faithful to preserve his people, even in the midst of exile. In chapter 5, Daniel's Babylonian name was used again and again and again. Belteshazzar, 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 we heard over and over again. Now the Babylonians are gone, and he's called Daniel again. By the way, that is significant. It's a significant point. The Babylonians tried to make him a Babylonian, and they couldn't make him a Babylonian. They changed to try to change his diet, eventually did change his diet. That didn't make him a Babylonian. They changed his location. That didn't make him a Babylonian. They changed his language. That didn't make him a Babylonian. They changed his name. That didn't make him a Babylonian. They changed his job and his vocation and his training and his education. None of that made him a Babylonian. Now the Babylonians are gone, and Daniel remains. And they don't call him Belteshazzar. They call him Daniel because he is not a Babylonian. That is part of the picture of the faithfulness that pleases God or the faithfulness that honors God. Several things that I want us to see as we read through this text. First thing I want you to see is this, that that this faithfulness that honors God is a blessing to the kingdom of man. The faithfulness that honors God is actually a blessing to the kingdom of man. 
that not just a blessing to God's people, but it's actually a blessing also to the kingdom of man. Look at the first four verses, if you will. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. You might want to underline that, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. It's a beautiful picture of faithfulness in Daniel's life. But I want you to notice something about the faithfulness in Daniel's life. Because oftentimes when we think about a faithfulness that honors God, immediately our mind goes to the religious hierarchy. I want to show you a picture of faithfulness that honors God. Well, certainly we're talking about a martyr at the top of the pyramid, right? No, we're not talking about a martyr. Well, if we're not talking about a martyr, then we're definitely talking about a missionary, right? Well, we're not talking about a missionary. Okay, if we're not talking about a martyr or a missionary, then certainly we're talking about a pastor. No, not talking about a pastor. Well, if it's not a martyr and it's not a missionary, it's not a pastor, then certainly it's some person who oversees some significant ministry. No, actually it's not. It's none of those things. And yet, this faithfulness pleases God. Daniel is not serving in the temple, and yet his faithfulness pleases God. Daniel's not even serving in Jerusalem, people. He's not even in the promised land. And yet, his is a faithfulness that pleases God. Daniel is in exile serving a king who does not know God. And his faithfulness pleases God. Listen to this from Ian Dugan. The first point to observe in this chapter is that Daniel had learned how to live as a pilgrim. From the outset of his career in Babylon, Daniel was in his culture but not of his culture. On the one hand, he didn't withdraw from Babylonian culture as far as he could in order to avoid being stained by it. On the contrary, he had now served the empire in order uh, – uh, sorry – on, on the contrary, he had now served the empire faithfully for almost 70 years. Let that sink in for a minute, folks. For almost 70 years, he served the empire. Far from using his age as an excuse to retire, he continued to serve the new administration. Belshazzar had been replaced as king by Darius, and the Babylonian empire had been replaced by that of the Medes and the Persians. But Daniel kept on serving. In fact, Daniel served the empire so well that he continued to get promoted. He's not in the temple. He's not a priest. He's not a missionary. He's not a pastor. He's an exiled slave. And he honors God with his life and his service 
and it is a blessing even to those whom he serves. Oh, that that could be said of us. Oh, that the mark of Christ on our lives and our walk with God as redeemed individuals bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ would live our lives in such a manner that even in workplaces that have absolutely nothing to do with gospel ministry, people would look upon our lives and see the faithfulness of our God and our faithfulness to our God overflowing from the faithfulness of our God and be blessed because there's nobody else that they'd rather tap for a position than us. Daniel, that's God's faithfulness. By the way, Daniel is serving this way because he's been told to. He's living this way because he's been instructed to. Well, how do I know that? Well, I know that because I read Jeremiah. What does Jeremiah have to do with Daniel? Well, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 29... You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Turn with me, if you will, and look at Jeremiah to the left. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. All right. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29. We all know and love Jeremiah 29:11, And we know and love it because we rip it kicking and screaming out of its context. And then we bludgeon it to death until it says something that it was never intended to say. But if you look at Jeremiah 29.1, you learn something about Daniel and why he's doing what he's doing. Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning at verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests the prophets, and the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who's that? Daniel and the boys. Jeremiah the prophet wrote them a letter. And here's what we find in the letter. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, here's what he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's Daniel. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God told Daniel through Jeremiah to seek the welfare of the place where he went into exile, and he did exactly that. And he did it in such an exemplary fashion that, first of all, Darius doesn't kill him. Think about that, folks. Darius walks in. He doesn't know who's who. Darius is taking over the Babylonian Empire. But he doesn't kill Daniel. 
Not only did they not kill Daniel, but so far, it, but, but this is his first one. We don't know how long this has been, but here's what we know, that rather quickly, Darius, who puts 120 men over the entire region and then puts three men over those men and eventually one man over the three men starts by putting Daniel in the position of the three men who oversee the 120, and then, according to the text, makes a decision to make Daniel over the three men who are over the 120, who are over the entire kingdom. Why? Because Daniel was obedient to the word of God, and he looked to the best interest, even of the country where he was sent into exile. Daniel is serving the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Why? Because God has raised up the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Daniel is not serving in false piety, nor is he serving in what we would call cultural piety. He wasn't Christianizing the culture, as we would say today. You're really faithful to God if you're Christianizing the culture, if you're making the culture more Christian. It's not what Daniel was doing. Daniel wasn't Judaizing the Medes and the Persians. He wasn't taking over the politics or the government of the Medes and the Persians. Again, that's what we say. If you're, if you're a real Christian, then you'll, you'll go into government and you'll go into politics and you'll take it over so you can make everybody live under our rule instead of under someone else's rule. That's not what Daniel was doing. Daniel wasn't feeding the poor. And that's not the faithfulness that stood out here in Daniel chapter 6. He wasn't feeding the poor. Is it a bad thing? Is any of this stuff bad? No, but it's not what he was doing. Daniel wasn't transforming the system. Daniel wasn't improving the plight of the exiles. There's nothing here about Daniel seeing to it that the Jewish exiles are treated better. Daniel was helping Darius mitigate his losses. That's what it says in verse 2. Look again in verse 2. And over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account. Why? So that the king might suffer no loss. That's Daniel's great job. See to it that Darius, your oppressor, doesn't suffer loss. This is so counterintuitive, isn't it? Completely and utterly counterintuitive. But this is faithfulness that honors God. Folks, don't buy into this picture of the world that says we have to be of the world, not in it. That's backwards. We have to be in the world, but not of it. We have to be in the world. But you know what we've done? What we've done is we've said, well, we'll be in the world, but only after we make the world like us. So our goal of being in the world will be to change the world so that we're no longer uncomfortable in the world. Newsflash. That's what happens at the end of the age when Christ returns. You don't get that now. Amen? You don't get that now. You get that in the, at the end of the age 
Right now we're pilgrims. Right now we're exiles. So what do you do? You find yourself faithful wherever the Lord puts you. That's what you do. And sometimes that may mean just making sure that the king doesn't suffer loss because that's where God's got you serving. So if God's got you working for Conoco Phillips, you, you don't have to make Conoco Phillips a Christian company. We could talk about that for a long time. In order to be faithful to God at Conoco Phillips or HP or wherever you happen to work. You know what your faithfulness to God may look like? Seeing to it that your employer doesn't suffer loss under your watch. You've been so conditioned that there are some of you under the sound of my voice right now, and you work for a company somewhere, and your job is as simple as seeing to it that your employer suffers no loss. But you desire to serve God, so you're trying to figure out how you can get out of the business world and into the quote-unquote ministry so that you can really serve the Lord. Newsflash. Faithfulness that honors God is a blessing to the kingdom of man. It's a blessing to the kingdom of man. Faithfulness where you are. Hear me, mother, who sits there every day changing diapers, cleaning up vomit, spanking children again and again and again for the same stuff. Amen, somebody. I know that sometimes you sit there with the rod in your hand going, really, there's got to be more than this. And there is. There is more than that. You know what's more than that? The next thinking. You're being faithful where God has placed you. Because God is faithful, and God grants you faithfulness. There are others of you who sit there, and your circumstance is not exactly what you would want your circumstance to be, and you just believe that you could do and be so much more if God would just put you in that right position. Maybe if he put you on that pyramid, martyr, missionary, Pastor, Christian worker, Daniel chapter 6 screams to us. God is the God of the whole world. Amen? And men are made in his image. And because men are made in his image, you do good to God when you do good to men. And it's enough. It's enough. Secondly, faithfulness that honors God is the fruit of true religion. It's the fruit of true religion. Verse 5, then the men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Notice in verse 4, in verse 4, they're trying to find some way to get King Darius, not to elevate this slave exiled Jew to the highest position of honor in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. 
He doesn't look like us. He doesn't smell like us. He doesn't eat like us. He doesn't talk like us. He's not one of us. Do not put him in this high position. Guys, we got to figure out how to get Daniel out of this high position. That's great. Let's go find something that he did wrong because he's not one of us. Certainly if he's not one of us, he's doing something wrong. What did you find in your investigation? He's doing everything the king asked him to do. We cannot find anything in his job description that he's not doing and excelling at. How are we going to get to this guy? I know how we get to him. We must fit the law of his God against the law of the Medes and the Persians. Only way to get to Daniel. Force him to choose between the law of his God and the law of the Medes and the Persians. That's it. Folks, do you realize what kind of statement that is? Daniel is obedient to the law of God. Daniel is obedient to the law of God. And he was known for his obedience to the law of God. They knew this about him. It was so well known about him that when these individuals decided to try to drive a wedge between him and Darius, they knew the one place where they could go to drive that wedge. They knew the one place that they had to go to drive that wedge. Daniel is not going to forsake the king, even though the king is not his king. But more importantly than that, Daniel's not going to forsake the law of his God. In fact, that's the only thing that can cause him to forsake the king whom God has called him to serve. That is submission to authority. He is going to submit to authority. Even though he doesn't like the authority and the authority is not worthy of his submission, he's going to submit to his authority because it's the authority that God has placed over his life, no matter what. Unless that authority forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids. Because his submission is actually a byproduct of his submission to God. Listen to this from Psalm 119. That beautiful psalm about the law of God. Verses, beginning at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Isn't that beautiful? I am a sojourner on the earth. There's Daniel. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. And then listen to this. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. 
even though princes plot against me. It's your word that satisfies me. It's your law that satisfies me. Because the law is a perfect reflection of God's holiness. And the law is good. We don't like the law, but listen to what Paul says about the law in Romans, chapter 7, verses 7 and 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It is holy and righteous and good. Yeah, but didn't Jesus come to free us from the law? No, Jesus came to free us to the law. Amen? He came to free us to the law, the law that was crushing us, the law that showed us our guilt. Jesus came in order to fulfill the law, in order that he might impute his righteousness to us that we might be completely and utterly righteous before the law. And then out of our delight and our gratitude, we are obedient to the law. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Folks, as followers of Christ, we delight in the law of the Lord, first and foremost, because we've been freed from its terror. And secondly, because we have been transformed because of Christ's finished work to where we are able to delight in the righteousness of God that is depicted in the law of God. But what about all those ceremonial laws? Yes, we delight in the ceremonial laws. What, do we keep them? No, they've been kept. And we celebrate the fact that Christ himself is the fulfillment of every one of them. There's a second piece here. His adherence to the law, but his dependence upon God in prayer. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, they've gone with a document before the king. And basically the document says that no request or worship is to be offered to anyone else for the next 30 days. The king signs it. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel finds out that there's a decree that would forbid him to pray for 30 days. And when he finds out about it, he goes to pray in front of an open window facing Jerusalem. Several things we see here. First of all, we see Daniel's practice of prayer. 
that he prayed three times a day. Listen to Psalm 55:17. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. There's not a command in the scripture that we pray three times a day. Muhammad actually picked up on this, this idea of Daniel and his prayer three times a day. And Muhammad has instituted in Islam, the religion that he invented, a prayer five times a day. Muhammad, however, changes the focus from praying toward Jerusalem to praying toward Mecca, although today Muslims, in their desire to destroy the Jews, have announced that Jerusalem is their capital. But that's a stolen practice, not a legitimate one. And it demonstrates a complete ignorance as to what Daniel was doing and why. Why did he pray toward Jerusalem? Well, he prayed toward Jerusalem because he had been told to pray toward Jerusalem. How do I know that? Well, I know that because I read Chronicles. Listen to this in Second Chronicles chapter 6, beginning at verse 36. Turn there, if you will. Second Chronicles chapter 6, beginning at verse 36. Again, if all we do is we look here and, and, and Daniel sort of this template for us, then, you know, so far we come up with, you know, you got to pray three times a day, and when you pray, you got to face toward Jerusalem. What's that about? Second Chronicles chapter 6, beginning at verse 36. This is Solomon speaking to the Lord as he consecrates the temple that he has built. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. But did you, you catch that? Solomon's dedicating the temple. This is at the height of the empire. He's dedicating the temple that is unlike anything anyone has ever seen in the world. It was said of Solomon's temple that foreign dignitaries, when they would come over the horizon and get their first glimpse of the temple, would stop and dismount to stand and stare at the beauty and majesty and glory of Solomon's temple. And on the day it's dedicated, Solomon says, you know, if these people who are strong right now are disobedient, and if as a result of their disobedience you give them over to an enemy and they're carried away, far or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they are carried captive and pray Toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer, and their pleas, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Why is Daniel praying toward the city of Jerusalem? Because King Solomon 
at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem said, if this ever happens to us, we must repent, we must pray, and we must pray toward this city to symbolize our dependence on God, to symbolize our worship of Almighty God, to symbolize the importance of his presence in this place. Listen to me. Daniel has been in captivity for 70 years. He is a man in his mid-80s, and he still goes every day to pray, facing the city that he is told to pray toward, and pleading that God will forgive his people, pleading that God will bring them back into the land. Daniel does not go into his chamber and say, oh, my God, how grateful I am that even though I'm a captive, you have made me powerful. How grateful I am that even though I've lost Jerusalem as my home, this place is now my home. How grateful I am that Nebuchadnezzar trusts me and I have much authority in this kingdom. How grateful I am that I have all... No, that's not his prayer. How do I know that's not his prayer? Because he's praying for Jerusalem. His prayer is, I don't care how much Darius trusts me. I don't care how much authority Darius gives me. I want to go home. How much more for those of us who look for a city whose builder and maker is God? There is a temple that makes Solomon's temple pale in comparison. It's the temple Jesus talked about when he said, tear down this temple and in three days, I'll build it up again. Here's the beauty of it. Not only do we not have to long for a temple in a particular place, but your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. The glorious truth. Daniel's in captivity. And he's looking toward a piece of land that his eyes can't even see anymore, that he's never going to get back to it. All he has is yearning that will never be satisfied from a temporal perspective. Christianity has no capital. Christianity believes in no holy land. Let me say that again. Christianity believes in no holy land. Christianity believes in no holy land. Israel may be the land of the Bible, but it is not the holy land. There's no such thing for a Christian. There is no place that we look to and describe those kinds of qualities. We don't need to go to a place to find where the Spirit of God dwells. The Spirit of God dwells in us. Finally, faithfulness that honors God often results in persecution. But but wait a minute. I thought you said it blesses the kingdom of man. It does. It blesses the kingdom of man. But men hate God. We see this in verses 4 through 9, 11 through 13, and 15. Look at verses 4 and 5. Then the high officials and the satraps 
sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then the men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Just stop for a minute and think about how irrational this is. We hate this man. Darius has already made him one of the three leaders over the whole kingdom. He's about to make him number one. We've got to get rid of him. Great. Find something that he has done against the kingdom that we love. We can't. So wait a minute. He is a blessing to the kingdom that we love, and we want to get rid of him. That's completely and utterly irrational. Darius says he's not one of us, but he makes sure that I suffer no loss. I trust him. I don't care what skin color he is. I don't care what language he speaks. I don't care what kind of food he eats. I don't care what God he prays to. These men, completely and utterly irrational. I don't care how good he is to our people. I want him gone. Men's hatred of God is not rational at all. Look at the atheists. It's amazing how much hatred men can muster up toward a God in whom they do not believe. There is no God, and I hate him. Verses 6 through 9. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an order. By the way, they just lied. The only way that could be true is if Daniel had agreed. But he had. So not only are they irrational, but they're liars. They're irrational and they're liars. They're willing to do and say anything in order. Not, listen, here's their goal. Because they can't all be in the position that Daniel is in. They don't care. They just want to make sure he's not in that position. Because of who and what he represents. Folks, you just need to know that this is what faithfulness from God and faithfulness to God produces in those who do not know and love God. The king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any God or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it can be so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Listen, three times in these fifteen verses, we read the law of the Medes and the Persians. Four times in these fifteen verses, we read either cannot be changed, or cannot be revoked. How do you get Daniel? You get Daniel by pitting the law of the Medes and the Persians against the law of God. 
how do you get Darius? You get Darius by pitting his wishes against the law of the Medes and the Persians. You see, the Babylonians had a supreme law, but their supreme law was the king. The Medes and the Persians have a supreme law. Their supreme law is the decree. Not even the king is more powerful than the decree. Verses 11 and the first part of 12. And then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God because they knew exactly where to find him. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, watch this, watch what they did. Oh, king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, oh, king, shall be cast into the den of the lions? They don't come to him and say, hey, king, guess what we saw? They come to him and they first say, uh, king, remember the law that you made that cannot be changed? Verse 13, and they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, Daniel, who was one of the three leaders of the kingdom, here's why they hate him. Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. This pattern is repeated earlier in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, there is the statue, and there is the call to bow down and worship the statue. In Daniel chapter 3, it's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In Daniel chapter 3, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Here, it's Darius. In Daniel chapter 3, it's fire. Here, it's lions. But it's the same pattern. In Daniel chapter 3, it's will you worship a false god. In Daniel chapter 6, it's will you not worship the true god. But it's the same pattern. And the question is the same. In Daniel chapter 3, will you risk your life to be faithful to God? In Daniel chapter 6, will you risk your life to be faithful to God? That's a terrible question to ask a follower of God. Will you risk your life to be faithful to God? Newsflash, faithfulness to God is my life. I have no life apart from faithfulness to God because ultimately my faithfulness to God is only a reflection of God's faithfulness to me. So what you're asking me essentially is this. Will you transfer your trust from God who is your life me and the answer to that question is always no this is a pattern that we see in the Old Testament 
but not just in the Old Testament. It's a pattern that we see in the New Testament and beyond. Listen to Jesus, Matthew chapter 10, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see that also in John 15. The world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. That's the great irony in this whole concept of cultural transformation, that ultimately what we desire is to make the world not the world. Ultimately, we believe that apart from the second coming of Christ, we can turn this world into a place that loves and celebrates us. And worse than that, until that happens, we owe the world nothing. Run from the world. Spit on the world. Flee from the world. It's the opposite of what Jesus tells us. Be in the world, but not of the world. Which is the formula for persecution by the world? Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecution and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Peter, in First Peter 2, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's who we are. I said beyond, because this didn't just happen in the Old Testament, didn't just happen in the New Testament. It has happened continuously throughout the history of the church. Listen to this from Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius was martyred around A.D. 100. 
ironically, by being thrown to the lions. When he found out that that was his sentence, here's what he wrote to the brothers in Rome. I am his wheat, ground fine by the lion's teeth to be made purest bread for Christ. Better still, you should incite the creatures to to become a sepulchre for me. Let them not leave the smallest scrap of my flesh so that I need not be a burden to anyone after I fall asleep. When there is no trace of my body left for the world to see, then I shall truly be Jesus Christ's disciple. This is not our own. We are exiles here. Granted, God has been gracious to us, especially in this part of the world. But all over this world today, our brothers and sisters are persecuted, are killed. All over the world today, there are brothers and sisters of ours who are not able to worship in the open like we are able to worship in the open. And unlike Daniel, that we'll see on next week, who's saved from death in the lion's den, Ignatius and others like him are not. They die at the hand of those who hate our God. And they do not die because the church doesn't work hard enough at making people like us. They die because it's who we are in Christ. Listen to this from Sean Michael Lucas. The power of God is not displayed ultimately in his ability to rescue and deliver. Rather, the power of God is displayed in his ability to take evil and transform it for his good and for his own purpose. And we believe this because our God is the one who raised the crucified Jesus from the dead, transforming the unimaginable evil of the crucifixion into the inconceivable glory of the resurrection. That's who we are. That's what we learn from Daniel chapter 6. That's what we learn about being exiles. And sometimes we don't learn this lesson well because of our history and our heritage as Americans. And praise God for this, this absolute blip on the historical screen where Christians have been in majorities and where Christians have seen their culture and ideals flourish. But that's not the rest of the world. That's not the rest of the history of the church. That's not reality, and it's not what we ought to be used to. We do not belong here. This is not as good as it gets. We are not seeing terrible things in our culture because we vote the wrong way. We are seeing terrible things in our culture because men love darkness rather than light. We're not seeing terrible things in our culture because the church is not being the church. The church is always the church. And one of the problems is there's a lot out there that passes for the church that is not. But think before you say stuff like that. Oh, if the church was just what the church was supposed to be, we wouldn't experience bad legal decisions or persecutions. What Bible do you read? 
what church history do you study? That is absolutely ridiculous. And there are many of us who hold out hope for America, the city on the hill. By the way, that's what Jesus said about the church, not America. And we hold out our hope that if the church would just vote right, read right, live right, then we can usher in this wonderful kingdom called America of the world and not in the world. God help you if that's what you're holding on to. That is not our luck. We belong to the one whom this world crucified. We belong to the one whom this world hates. We belong to the one who exposes this world's sin, and as a direct result of it, they want to kill not only him, but all those who belong to him. But we belong to the one who overcame the world. And we belong to the one who says if we overcome, there is waiting for us a crown of life. You can have the crowns of this world. Just give me Jesus. You can have the kingdoms of this world. Give me the kingdom of God. You can have communities that look all nice and pretty and are dressed up, but you give me Christ in the midst of the worst circumstance because then I know that when my eyes are closed for the last time, I have not had my best life now. But my best life is yet to come. See, faithfulness that honors God it does bless the kingdom of man. It does. It really does. And it is. It's rooted in true religion. But ultimately, ultimately, it's the very cause for which they persecute us. Because if they loved the one whose faithfulness produces our faithfulness, then they would come to him in repentance and faith. They don't. They don't love him. And our desire should not be, well, they don't love him, so let's outnumber them and outvote them so that at least they have to live by our rules. Our desire should be, they don't love him. Oh, that we might make him known to them. Oh, that we might bring his truth to them. Oh, that they might be confronted with the awe and glory and majesty of Christ. So that if not converted, they might at least be honest about who it is that they're rejecting. That's what we see in Daniel chapter 6. This is not all about getting out of the lion's den. Because most of us don't escape. Let's pray. When was the ice age? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on the Bible's reliability and authority. The idea of an icy world inhabited by mammoths and saber-toothed tigers fascinates people. But where does this fit into biblical history? 
Those who believe in an old earth say there were many ice ages, but they don't have a mechanism that could cause one ice age, let alone dozens. When we start with the Bible's history, though, a single ice age makes sense. The global flood of Noah's day and its aftermath would have radically changed the climate. After the flood, there would have been warm oceans and cool summers. Now, these conditions would have been perfect for tons of snow with little melting. That resulted in an ice age that occurred within hundreds of years of the flood. Want to know more about the ice age? Visit our website to find answers to your questions about mammoths, glaciers, ice cores, and more at AnswersRadio.com. There's a popular Christian song entitled Reckless Love, sung by Corey Asbury of Bethel Church in Redding, California. The first verse goes like this. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. So far, or should I say so, so far, the song is all right. Psalm 139.4 says that before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. Romans 2.4 says that God shows his kindness toward us to lead us to repentance. But then we get to the chorus where he sings... Uh, what? The love of God is reckless? A word that means without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action? Not only is that an unbiblical description of God's love, the artist contradicted himself. In the first verse he sang, Before I spoke a word and before I took a breath, you were good and kind to me. But then he sings that God's love is thoughtless and careless. The Bible says that God chose his elect before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's not reckless. That's foreordained. Don't sing this reckless fluff. Praise God for who the Bible says he is when we understand the text. I live in Mexico, and there are so very many starving street dogs and cats. I've been a Christian all my life. I'm 60, but I've never been able to understand why innocent animals have to suffer so much. If God sees them, and I know he does, how can he allow such innocent beings to suffer so much? I know about free will and all that, but animals? I feel this question (laughs) Uh, because one of the things that I really struggled with and, and still ponder on, honestly, is the problem of evil. Now, I want to give a little different perspective on this. What I want to do is replace every time you use the word animal with children. And I have asked and wrestled with the same exact question, okay? All right, there are so many starving children. I've never been able to understand why innocent children have to suffer so much. If God sees them, and I know he does, how can he allow such innocent beings to suffer so much? I know about free will and all that, but children interchangeably used, we still have this problem of suffering, okay? So the way that I read this question is why does God allow any suffering with animals or people at all? I've always said that this is the kind of stuff that atheists are made out of, all right? So first I want to point out something very obvious that I didn't really think about when I was in the New Age, Uh, but no matter what your beliefs are, Everybody has to deal with the problem of evil, of course, even atheists, all right? As a New Ager, I believe in a sort of like a subjective reality where evil was not a part of my manifestation of reality, as crazy as that sounds. It was uh, part of humanity's ego, all right? Either way, 
It's there. Everyone has to answer this question no matter what they believe in. The question is then, why evil? And then you have to wonder, what is the answer to evil? Now, the Christian view on this is that God didn't create the world evil. He created it good. He said that you know about free will, but honestly, that's nothing to glaze over. There's a lot more to dig into with that. This is the reason why evil exists, and not to mention that there's a spiritual enemy out there wreaking havoc, creating evil and chaos too. Now, my friend Frank Turek, who deals with these questions a lot and has written books about this, he put it this way in one of his books that I thought was uh, pretty eloquently said. He said that if God did away with evil, he'd have to do away with us, with our free will. But the problem is that if he did away with free will, then he'd have to do away with love. Now, this goes a lot deeper, all right? Now, the risk, if you will, that God took was to create a world where real love can exist. This is that world. There was no other world that could be created that love could be real except this one. He had to create a world where people could choose the opposite of love. This means he must allow the decision to choose evil or love for the sake of real love to exist. So free will, while it allows the possibility for evil, is the only way for us to love, and achieve ultimate good. This, by the way, is why we're commanded to take care of God's creation and people who are suffering. Many people just by the moral law do this, not just Christians. The other thing, the other perspective I want to give on this is that this life is not the end, right? We don't really die. We just change location. And if Christianity is true, this is not the end of the story. God is still going to make all things right. Everyone will be judged and will stand before God for everything they've done and he will righteously judge them. This means that God won't see our sin. He'll see Jesus' perfection. And not only this, he makes all things right, including the suffering of animals. This means that everything that was wrong, he makes right. And this could be a variety of things, right? So think of people who have had a terrible injustice done to them, all right? Maybe they, they're wrongly accused of something or the killer of someone's family member that got away with it. Think of any atrocity. And all I can say is that judgment day is coming, and it will be a perfect judgment. All that is hidden will be made known, and this is a good thing. Jesus said that we will have evil and trouble in this world, but he says to take heart because he has overcome the world. Now, just another perspective on this is that just the fact that you can see that and know it's evil and wrong shows that God exists and wants to make all things right. God wants Eden again. All right, he loves us and he loves his creation. But let me elaborate a little bit more on this because I do think that this is very insightful, okay? Your observation is objective, not subjective. So Augustine of Hippo, he was a really respected philosopher and theologian of his time around the fourth century. And what he was doing was that he was pondering evil and he came up with this argument. He said uh, his first premise was God created all things. This is true. The second premise is evil is a thing. And therefore, his conclusion was, therefore, God created evil. If the first premise and the second premise are true, the conclusion has to be true. It really bothered him that God could create evil, and he seemed to really struggle with this. But upon further examining his argument, he realized there was a really big error in his second premise. Evil is not a thing. Evil is a lack or a deficiency of a good thing. So, for example, cancer could not exist if it weren't for healthy cells. Evil is like a cut finger. If you take the cut out of your finger, you have a better finger, 
but if you take the finger out of your cut, you have nothing. It can't exist without healthy skin. There can be no objective evil unless there's objective good, and there can be no objective good unless God exists. So if evil is real, and we all know that it is, then it follows that God exists. Now, if you want to dive deeper into this, um, a really good read is Stealing from God by Frank Turek and Why God Allows Evil by Clay Jones. Both of those books will be in the resources link in the description. But I want to extend some empathy about this. Um, this is a tough thing to see and deal with, no matter if it's animals, people, or any other evil out there. I remember um, having moments of extreme anguish uh, when it came to the problem of evil. And I also have this odd survivor's guilt sometimes, too, like when I hear of terrible things happening, like the, the recent earthquake in Syria and Turkey. I struggle with things like that. And the thing is, though, is that nobody is exempt from pain and suffering. We all experience this. I mean, I, I really wrestled with this, and I found that in the New Age thought, this was an appeal for me. I found some relief for this. But the relief came at the cost of ignoring it. In my search for answers for this, it really was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who rose Jesus from the dead, that we truly can deal with evil in a just and perfect way. And I also want to say that this is why we as Christians must be the hands and feet of Jesus by caring for others, including animals. Let me just shine a light on, on you people out there for a second, you Christians out there that who practice the James principle, right? And you put action to your faith by actually doing something about the evil in the world, by caring for others, being the light of the world. Christians are compelled to practice charity because this is a fruit of the spirit to love and help others. We still need to take care of others and God's creation. We're mandated to. So though it might be tough to see these poor animals suffer, I know, there are people out there that are trying to make it right the best way they can, and eventually God will be the completion of this loving act by making all things right and good again, and that gives me hope. The scientific test. Daniel, you said something I've never heard before, and I've interviewed thousands of people. You said you believe in the Spirit. You don't believe in God because you believe in something bigger than God. What on earth could be bigger than God? I went to uh, Catholic school and middle school, and um, they really pushed in God into us. I really strayed away from God from then. For a long time, I was an atheist, but um, I say there's a higher power. Like, uh, yes, we were created. But I don't believe in, the, like, the Holy Spirit and God. So I hear what you're saying. There's a traditional belief in God that's revealed through religion. You've got an image of God that's different from what you've learned in Catholic school. Yes. Is life a mystery to you? I say so. Do you believe in evolution, or do you think God made man in his own image as male and female? I believe in evolution. So in the beginning was what? Um, it had to be nothing. Yeah, there had to be nothing. And then... How did nothing become life? Flowers and birds and trees, sun, moon, stars, puppies and kittens and seasons and fruits and the marvels of the human eye and the miracle of childbirth. All these things have got order to them. Nothing can't create all these things. So evolution is supposedly a process that happened, but it can't give any explanation as to what was in the beginning. Did you know evolution is received by blind face? No, I did not. Yeah, because it doesn't pass the scientific test. To pass the scientific test, it has to be observable and testable. You can't test something that happened 60 million years ago, supposedly. 
But you can test what the Bible says. God made male and female in the beginning, and you can see that in all species. Elephants, horses, cats, cows, everything is male and female, right. including human beings. And everything reproduces after its own kind, as the Bible says. Even trees. See that tree behind you? Yeah. It's got seeds. They're not going to bring forth a different tree than what's growing there. Because, as the Bible says, so that's observable and testable. Now, you said life's a mystery to you. You don't know why you're alive, what you're doing here, or where you're going. Is that right? That is right. So you're lost. In a way, I am lost. Although I don't know what's ahead of me, I have someone who's off camera that helps me with life. There she is, listening in. Can I have permission to show you? Feel free to button if I say something you don't agree with. Yeah, life is a mystery if you don't read the instruction book. The Bible is the instruction book, and it tells us why we're alive. We're created by God. We're created for God, for his pleasure, and his pleasure is our pleasure. And what happens after we die is we stand before God in judgment. So how are you going to do on judgment day? Are you a good person? I would say I'm a decent person. Morally? Yes. So let's go to the ninth commandment. How many lies have you told in your life? A lot. Ever stolen something? Including pencils and pen. <laughs> I have stored teacher's pen. The value of that which you steal is irrelevant to God. If you open my wallet and just take one dollar out, you're as much a thief as if you took ten dollars out. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes. That's called blasphemy, punishable by death. One to go, and I know this is painful, but it's worth it. This is a killer. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Does she count? Of course. <laughs> you commit adultery in your heart when you do that. So here's a quick summation of your court case on Judgment Day. Daniel, you've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer at heart. And you have to face God on Judgment Day. If he judges you by those ten commandments, you're going to be innocent or guilty. Mm-hmm. That's what you're thinking about. You'd be guilty like the rest of us. <laughs> Isn't that true? Yes. Did the Catholic Church ever tell you the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death? No. It's very famous. It's saying God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge who looks at a criminal who's committed murder, but he thinks he's a good person. The judge says, I'm going to show you how serious this is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what you've earned. And Daniel's sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row. And your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. Here's another question. Did the Catholic Church tell you how to find everlasting life according to the Bible? Um, yes, by donating to their church. Let me tell you, have you ever heard the gospel? A few times, yes. What is the gospel? I say a few times, but I kind of don't remember. Yeah, the word gospel just means good news, and the good news is that God destroyed death 2,000 years ago. Let me, let me tell you how he did it. You've heard of Jesus dying on the cross? People have, but they haven't heard this, and this will change everything for you if you can get a grip of it. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. He was saying paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go. If someone pays the fines, he says, you're out of here. You're guilty, but you can leave because someone paid your fine. And it's legal. Well, God can legally take the death sentence off you because Jesus paid the fine 2,000 years ago. And then he rose from the dead and defeated death. And all you have to do, according to the Bible, to find everlasting life is repent of your sins. That's turn from them. And then trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. One last question. If you're going to jump out of a plane 10,000 feet, why would you put on a parachute? To live. Yeah, and your motivation is fear. 
you don't want to hit the ground at 120 miles an hour. <laughs> and that fear is your friend. It's not your enemy because it's making you put a parachute on. And Daniel, because I love you, and you too because you've been listening, I've tried to put the fear of God in you today, making you a little scared, hoping you'll see that fear as your friend, not your enemy, because it'll make you mean business with God and you'll find everlasting life when you repent and trust in Christ. Is this making sense? Yes. You're going to think about what we talked about? Of course. So when are you going to repent and put your faith in Jesus? Um, when I explore a little bit in my life. It's like you and I are on the edge of a plane 10,000 feet up. I've got my parachute on. We're jumping any second. I say, Daniel, can I put your parachute on? You say, I just want to explore this a little. <laughs> the best thing I can do for you is hang you out the plane by your ankles for two seconds. You'll come back in and say, I can see what you're saying. Give me that parachute. Give it to me now. And I've tried to hang you out eternity by your ankles just for a couple of minutes and say, this is deadly serious. This is your life we're talking about. Examine the earnestness of my tone. Why am I talking like this? It's because I know what I'm saying is true. And I really do care about you. And I want to see you in heaven, not in hell. And I don't want you to put this off. Because you may not be here tomorrow. You could die in your sleep tonight. 150,000 people die every 24 hours. 150,000. 54 million each year. And everyone's making plans for tomorrow. Not realizing that death can seize upon them. So I want you to think about it with that sense of seriousness. Can you do that? Yes. Do you have a Bible at home? I do. Can I give you a book I've written called Scientific Facts in the Bible? Yes. Would you like one too? Yes, sir. Okay. Let me get it for you. Hey, thanks for listening. And thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Let me get that for you. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast. The Evidence Study Bible. 200 of the most commonly asked questions for the Christian faith and much more. The starter kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com. If you've never seen when demons try hard to stop the gospel, you've got to see it. You can watch it right now by clicking up to Let's The Flood and the Ice Age. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's word and the gospel. There was only one ice age and it came after the global flood. As the fountains of the great deep burst open, underwater volcanoes warmed the oceans from pole to pole. Then those warmer oceans caused lots of evaporation and that evaporation came back down as snow. Why? Well, that volcanic activity would have filled the atmosphere with ash and small particles, reflecting sunlight back into space, cooling the Earth. Warm oceans and cool air results in lots of snowfall, but it doesn't melt during the cool summers. So ice sheets would have built up around the world. You see, it's the Bible's history that explains the Ice Age. To learn more about the flood and its aftermath, visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll learn more about the Bible's history at AnswersRadio.com. It's popular to say, no creed but Christ. But ironically, that's a creed, and it's one in need of some clarity. Creeds and confessions are formal statements of belief summarizing essential or important biblical doctrines. What does your church believe about Jesus or about God, mankind, sin, salvation, the resurrection of the dead? 
such beliefs are summed up by confessions. So if you were to say, no creed but Christ, which Christ? The Mormon Jesus? Of course not, you say. Ah, then there's more to your confession than no creed but Christ. And what about Jesus? Was he just a great teacher? No, he's the eternal son of God who is worthy of our worship. Now you're being confessional. You might say, we believe what the Bible says, but even heretics say that. What Bible are you talking about? Is Second Maccabees in your Bible? Some people are overly pious, and they like to think they're above it all. You simpletons may need confessions, but not me. I just need Jesus. Well, that's a confession, and if there's not more to your confession than that, you just let the oneness Pentecostals in the door. Through its history, the church has been marked by creeds and confessions, even in the New Testament. When Paul wrote, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that's a reference to a creed. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, and what follows is a confession. The Bible is a big book, and the study of it is vast. Creeds and confessions summarize and affirm what you and your church believe the Bible says. This is a biblical practice when we understand the text. On the Fritz, it won't start regularly. You bring it to the mechanic, he returns from the shop to report, I'm sorry, your automobile, it has a starting addiction. Lame sermon illustration number two, you visit the doc because your tummy is a little bit on the funky side. He runs some tests. He returns with his report announcing you have some sort of a digestion addiction. Lame sermon illustration number three, which is not quite as lame as the former two. Your child has a little problem telling the truth. You bust him for fibbing, and he says, but dad, mom, I just have a lying addiction. That is not quite as lame as it is to say that an individual who likes to look at filthy images has a porn addiction. The Bible makes it clear. There is no such thing. Myth number one about lust. You say, I lust because I'm human. No, you lust because you're a sinner. The world says, Hey, boys will be boys. I'm only human, after all. Wrong. You're an image bearer of God, and you are violating his perfect statutes, which makes you and me a sinner. Stop using worldly excuses for your biblical problem. After all, if you're just human, then you can continue down your path of looking at pornography, and you will increasingly lose any sort of conscience, which will get increasingly seared, because you're not identifying the problem of porn. It's sin, and you're not addicted to it. You can't get away with it just because you're human. You like to watch porn because you're a sinner. Myth number two about lust. You say, I lust because others dress immodestly. No. You lust because your wicked heart enjoys the immodesty of others. You cannot blame your internal problem on an external temptation. Ladies are going to dress inappropriately in our current culture, and the man who says he can't resist that temptation is ultimately blaming it on them. That's not the way it works, Smith. Number three, from Jared Moore, I lust because I'm not married. No, you lust because you love sex more than God. That's 
the truth of the matter. Myth number four, I lust because I desire marriage. No, you lust because you desire sexual immorality. Stop with the excuses. Myth number five, I lust because I cannot help it, you say. No, you lust because you willfully choose sin over holiness. In one sense, you cannot overcome your sin problem, but in a biblical sense, you can all by yourself. You can't do it. But with the power of the Spirit, you can. If you're simply calling your porn issue an addiction, the Holy Spirit doesn't work with addictions. (laughs) It works with sin problems. Label it. Claim it. Because by yourself, you can't overcome it. But with him, you are an overcomer. Myth number six. You say, I lust because my spouse isn't as interested in sex as I am. No, you lust because you desire sex more than you desire God. (laughs) Remember, when you're confronted with sin and temptation, you've got a worship decision. Where does my heart belong? Am I going to give it to the devil? Or am I going to worship God by saying, no. Do you desire God? Or do you desire what is contrary to God? And when you look at porn, you're lying to yourself. You are being self-deceived. And you are desiring sin and the devil more than God and holiness. A number seven myth from Sharon Moore. You say, I lust because my spouse doesn't appreciate me. No, you lust because you believe God is too small to meet your needs abundantly. You see, sir, I know this is going to sound pretty radical, but you don't need sex. You can desire sex. You can want sex. But when you need sex, what you're saying is, I don't have everything I need in God. I'm not fully satisfied with him. Myth number eight. I lust because I believe God's image bearers are beautiful. I can just look and appreciate. No, you lust because you reject God's creation. Number nine. You say, I lust because sexuality is pervasive in this Horrific culture. No, you lust because you want to be like your godless culture, just like the world. Finally, number 10. If I fulfill my lusts, you say, they'll go away. No, the remedy for your lustful desires is for you to deny yourself, starve your lust, pick up your cross, and follow Christ. In other words, sir, play the man. Stop being A child who can't control his own members? Stop acting in filthy ways because you are blood-bought by the man Jesus Christ. Stare at the Lord Jesus Christ, a manly man who did not look with lust. One of the greatest deceptions is that we are letting the world define the terms. Instead, let us put our struggles, our issues, our shortcomings and our addictions into a garbage can and replace it with the biblical word sin because when we do that, there is always a biblical solution and power. Man and the Ice Age. This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit us at the Ark Encounter with our life-size Noah's Ark. The Ice Age, which came after the flood, provided the perfect conditions for mankind to spread around the earth. 
cool global temperatures would have allowed people to pass through and even live in places like the Sahara Desert. The Ice Age would have also lowered ocean levels, exposing land bridges, allowing people to easily travel to places like North America. Now, during the Ice Age, those who settled up north were hardest hit by cold and snow. So those people would have made use of what was available, like caves for shelter and big game for food. Cavemen were just our relatives who lived in caves as they spread around the earth during the Ice Age. Discover more about the Ice Age when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You can also plan your visit to the Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com. Modest is hottest. Ever heard that one before? Yeah, it rhymes, and that's about it. The slogan tends to imply that what a man can't see will really get his mind racing, ladies, and if that's the intended effect, we've missed the whole point of modesty. It also implies that being hot is what's important when our heart's desire should be to glorify God. Instead of going down a list of don'ts, perhaps what we need in our theology is an appreciation of human beauty, the way God meant for us to enjoy it. Now, generally, when we talk about modesty, women tend to be the target, but men, this is for you, too. Even guys can behave immodestly. In Genesis 1:27, God made man in his own likeness, male and female. He created them. And he looked over everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. All of it, all the parts of a man are very good. All the parts of a woman are very good. Satan didn't sneak into the garden and start sticking stuff on them that God didn't design. God made them a certain way for a reason, and it wasn't for them to be ashamed of their bodies. But here's what we need to remember. There are parts of a man that only his wife gets to see and enjoy. There are parts of a woman that only her husband gets to see and enjoy. This is how scriptures like Song of Solomon help to shape a theology of beauty. We then become better worshipers of God when we enjoy what he has created in the right way for his glory. We treat certain parts of the body with greater modesty, not because we're ashamed, but because we honor the Lord. We are wonderfully made, as all of God's works are wonderful. We know this very well when we understand the text. Easy steps to backsliding. Number eight, allow yourself to enjoy some small, dainty pleasure. Remember watching cable when you first got saved? Don't click! I can't watch these things! Fast forward to today, well, it's not like I'm watching porn or anything. <laughs> These commercials are terrible, but they're only on for 30 seconds. These things, they aren't going to affect me. Congratulations, you're on the path to backsliding. Nobody who does anything that causes shame to the name of Christ ever thought in advance, yep, that will be I. Nope. They just let it go. Little by little. Another sign you're already backsliding from John Bunyan. You pursue rebellious conversation and fellowship. It's not that you ever have any sort of conversations with sinners. It's that you pursue it. You like some people who aren't Christians. Is that okay? Of course it is. We live in the world. We can have unbelieving friends, but we recognize we do not have a close relationship with them like we do with our believing brothers and sisters. Number six way to backslide, similar to seven, you trade Christian community for distinctly unchristian company. You don't just have unbelieving friends. Maybe that's all you have. And those are the ones you prefer over Christians. 
that's a big problem. Why? Because First John tells us that one of the signs that you are soundly saved is that you like hanging out with one another. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 4, we see that fellowshipping with believers is a way for you to be fed spiritually so you don't backslide. The number five way to a backslide Determine that Christians are hypocrites because they continue to sin. The emphasis here is that you look at others and think, tisk, tisk, tisk. But that's not easy. Other Christians are such hypocrites, aren't they? Always sinning like that. That could be a sign that you're already on the path to backsliding because you are not taking heed lest you too shall fall. Yes, we're justified, but we keep on sinning. Paul considered himself the chief of sinners. You and I would do well, now that he is dead, to grab that available crown, put it on our own head, and never forget, I am the chief of sinners. Number four, you stop going to church. If you have an attitude toward church, that says, I'd rather not, and you will use any excuse that isn't even valid to stay away from church. I'm telling you, you're already backsliding. You're not in danger of it. You're actually doing it. Don't be deceived. Number three, you isolate yourself from Christian fellowship. If you do not like hanging out with Christians, you're in danger. Number two, you neglect your devotions and stop battling sin. If you're not doing your devotions, if you're not in the Word, you're not going to be fighting against sin. Why? Acts chapter 4, I'm telling you, fellowship, hearing good preaching in church, hearing it regularly, reading your Bible, you're just feeding your soul, your feet, you're going to get stronger every day. You are going to become a Christian who hates sin, who loves righteousness, but only if you are partaking of the means of growth. But the number one way to backslide, you stop meditating on the gospel. Perhaps you are failing to do one of the best things that you can do to strengthen your soul. Contemplate the cross daily. You no longer have to worry about facing the wrath of God taken care of. Jesus did that for you. When you done got saved, you are forgiven for all of your sins. Nailed to a tree. Past, present, future. All of them. You are a child of God. Perhaps you're thinking, how does this help me to not be a backslider? It's really simple. One question. Why, oh why, would you even be tempted to sin against a God who does all of those things for you and so much more? There are churches in the Middle East. Sadly, their pulpits are weak. It is devastating to the church when a pastor does not know how to preach because the pulpit leads the church. If a pulpit is weak, then the church is weak. And if the pulpit is strong, the church is strong. Would you please help strengthening pulpits around the globe by supporting the Masters Academy International at wretched.org slash pastor. The Ice Age and Ice Cores. This is Ken Hamp. CEO and founder of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. 
secular scientists tell us that the ice cores show tens of thousands of years of Earth's history. But they assume millions of years and that present-day slow, gradual processes have produced the ice layers. The ice cores need to be interpreted and our starting point determines how we interpret the evidence. When we start with the Bible's history, we know there was a global flood just a few thousand years ago. The flood would have brought about an ice age. This ice age was responsible for laying down a large part of today's ice layers in a very short period of time. And the ice cores are not tens of thousands of years old. Want to know more about how your starting point determines your interpretation? Visit our website to learn more about the true history of the world at AnswersRadio.com. Perhaps you've heard it said that God would never give you more than you can handle. Unfortunately, that statement is not in the Bible. In fact, it's very likely that you will experience more than you can handle. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, the Apostle Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. In Matthew 26.38, Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. This is Jesus we're talking about here. Remember King David? Yeah, the guy who beat a nine-foot giant with a stone in a sling? In Psalm 13, he prays for strength, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy says I have prevailed over him. In Psalm 88, he writes, I cry out day and night before you. So the Bible says nothing about God keeping you from more than you can handle. What it does say is that God would not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to resist. That's in 1 Corinthians 10:13. In other words, there's never an excuse to do evil. But when it comes to hardships, they can get pretty rough and teach us to rely on God. He is still gracious, delivering us even from the grave through the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ. We learn more about his grace when we understand the text. Hey, YouTube. Morning now. I'm in a weird mood today, so it's a good day to film. For many years before the tubes of you, or even before dumb phones were a thing, I was in what I would call a counter-cult ministry, and it all started with two nice Jehovah's Witnesses who came to my door and caused quite the domino effect, but not like what you'd think. They got me in quite the theological chokehold that caused me to actually read and study my Bible, which made me realize that the beliefs that I had were New Age, New Thought, and not Biblical, which then I repented of but then realized that what my J-dubs were believing wasn't biblical either, so what's up with that? And then that caused me to go down the wonderful rabbit hole of learning about Jehovah's Witnesses, mind control, and cults. And this actually taught me a lot. It taught me a lot of people skills, how to challenge someone with differing beliefs without being an absolute jerk about it, and how to love them while still disagreeing with them. It taught me when to hold my ground and when to own my mistakes and how not to own someone else's reaction to my challenges to them. In other words, if they get mad at me because I'm being a provoking jerk, then that's on me. But if they get mad at me because I've kindly challenged their beliefs and they're big mad about it, then that's on them. But all of this also taught me a lot about cults. What are they? What makes a cult? What are the methods they use? 
why do people fall for this, and so much more. I learned that critical thinking is quite important in aligning your beliefs with reality. I learned that there are very smart and very wonderful people that get taken captive by cults. So I thought I'd make a video telling you the things I learned from people much smarter than me in hopes of helping you become smarter. So let's start with the basics. What makes up a cult? I hear lots of people throwing around the word cult, like people do the word love or narcissism. It's just sort of lost its meaning because it's so overused and misunderstood, in my opinion. First, let me just tell you what a cult is not, all right? Someone that has different beliefs than you does not equal that they are then in a cult. This is probably the correlation I hear the most, and it's just simply not true all the time or even fair. If anything, this is a fallacy to just dismiss what the other person is saying and an easy and lazy way out of not having to think about your own position. Second, a cult isn't just some small group of people in a house far, far away with tinfoil hats on and Kool-Aid in the fridge. The scary truth is that anybody can be involved in a cult. Really, really intelligent people have been involved in cults. But there are actually specifics for what makes up a cult. They're characterized by several key elements that set them apart from mainstream groups. First, they typically feature a charismatic leader or more who possesses qualities like charm, confidence, they're hilarious. Second, another aspect of cults is they often adhere to an exclusive belief system that includes extreme religious doctrines, conspiracy theories, uh, apocalyptic prophecies. Members are sometimes isolated either physically or psychologically from the outside world, and it fosters a dependency on the group for social and emotional support. Control over information is another hallmark of cults. They tightly regulate access to outside information and discourage critical thinking. Cults exercise behavior control as well, dictating sometimes daily routines, your relationships, who you can talk to, even dress codes. There are also thought control tactics, such as thought stopping and black and white thinking. Uh, both of these are used to manipulate members' thoughts and beliefs. And then there's emotional manipulation, which is employed to keep members obedient with fear, guilt, shame, promises of love and acceptance. Uh, those are common tools. Now, I'm going to elaborate more on each of these through what's called the BITE model, which is control over behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions. This was developed by a man named Stephen Hassan, who is a cult expert, um, and he has a very interesting uh, story and background of being in a cult himself called the Moonies. You might have heard of them. I respect much of his work and find it to be very valuable. And when I first learned about this model back in the day, I actually thought it was quite brilliant. Mind control was my favorite thing to teach on when I talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses and was always the first thing I started with because I needed Christians to understand why Majeda was so resistant to facts, even if it was presented to them right in front of their faces, yet still flat out rejected it. And of course, this isn't confined to just Jehovah's Witnesses. They were just the catalyst that I first learned about these behaviors. This model is also easy to remember, and when compared to high control groups, it's like it fits like a glove. Now keep in mind, everything that I'm going to share with you is not isolated to just religion and spirituality. This is found in social and political movements as well. All right, now the first thing that we're gonna go over in the BITE model is behavior control. Behavior control in cults involves 
regulating and manipulating the actions and conduct of members to establish compliance and dependence on the group. They might implement strict rules, guidelines like dress codes. They tell you what you can and can't wear, what color hair you can have, and just overall dictate your entire look. There might even be specific clothing, uniforms, symbols that identify them as part of the group. There's restrictions on contact with outsiders. Members might be discouraged or prohibited completely from associating with friends, family, or anyone who is not part of the group. They make the person feel like they will take them away from the group, from the truth, right, that the group has. This group has the truth. They have the truth, and they're trying to take you away from it and impose a sense of superiority within the group, and anyone outside should be either feared or seen as a threat. There can be a regulation of sleep patterns or even what they can and can't eat. Some cults uh, enforce sleep deprivation or dictate when members should sleep and when they should wake. They keep them so busy and so tired. The last thing I'll mention, which I talked about before, is the rigid expectation to adhere unquestioningly to authority. If you go against them, you might as well be going against God. This can seriously affect, by the way, how somebody sees God. They gain the trust of other people, and this is a key factor. They often claim unique special knowledge or divine connections. But here is a huge red flag for you. These leaders demand unquestioning devotion from their followers. You're not allowed to question them. Any dissent or criticism is met with punishment or emotional manipulation. It's not seen as like, oh, bummer, it's hard. Jimmy doesn't agree with me. Oh, well, let's just go be pals and grab dinner. No, you have to agree with the leader or else you're not invited to the pizza party. Guys, if you are in a church, a political group, or even a social group online, and you're not allowed to question what you've been told by the leadership or influencer or whoever it is, or you'll be looked at as the enemy, that's a huge red flag. Is from the dark secrets of mind control techniques that are all around us. That's with with authority. That's D O U G H E R T Y. Uh, check that out. The rest of it, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna stop it and play. Um, this is from Genesis four through seven. Zero tributorial. Genesis chapter 4. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, 
sin is lying at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Then Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now, cursed are you from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will be that whoever finds me will kill me. So Yahweh said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one who found him would strike him. Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Then Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. And Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubalcane, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubalcane was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, give ear to my word. For I have killed a man for striking me, and a boy for wounding me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Then Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has set for me another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, 
and he died. And Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis chapter 6. Now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. 
for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and complete it to one cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. As for me, behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall breathe its last. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Genesis chapter 7 Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky, by sevens, male and female, to keep their seed alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did, according to all that Yahweh had commanded him. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, by twos they came to Noah into the ark, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Now it happened after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on this day, all the fountains of the great deep split open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Then the rain came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On this very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, every fowl, every winged creature. So they came to Noah into the ark by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And Yahweh closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water multiplied and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and multiplied greatly upon the earth, 
and the ark went on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains under all the heavens were covered. The water prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth breathed its last, that is, birds and cattle and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, as well as all mankind, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, of all that was on the dry land, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah remained, and those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Are the ice sheets old? This is Ken Ham, editor of the faith-building series, The New Answers Books. Yesterday, we learned that after the global flood described in Genesis, the conditions were perfect to form ice sheets we now have at the pole. But many people claim those sheets are hundreds of thousands of years old. Well, that claim comes from the belief that only one layer is laid down each year. So the number of layers gives you the age of the ice sheet. But consider this, a fleet of airplanes were abandoned during World War II in Greenland and about 50 years later found buried in 260 feet of ice. Ice sheets don't form just one layer per year and in the past, after Noah's flood, layers formed very quickly. Discover more about how we can know the Bible's history is true at AnswersRadio.com. You'll find answers at AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
say yeah. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio and thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.